following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, again, you've given us the privilege to come together in the name of your Son and and to read, and to study, and to learn, and to seek to apply what His death has accomplished for us, that that we could please You. Pray, Lord, You would give us understanding, and that You would move our hearts to desire more and more to please You, to, to lift Your name high, to honor You in all that we do, that, that Jesus, His glory, His exaltation would be reason and purpose and desire of our existence. And we pray in His behalf and for Him. Amen. Well, <clears throat> probably remember when you were a kid, a little younger, and you found yourself in a, in a large canyon or a, a cave or a big cavern, and you just had this impulse to yell out, right? You just had to yell something, right? Come on, be honest with me. Right? Why'd you do that? You want to hear the echo, right? Hear it bouncing off the caverns and, you know, so hello, 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 right? Or hey, hey. Do it again. Hello. John. Oh, that's cool. Now, you know, we all did that. Now, some of you got a little more, uh, you know, um, that was boring just to say hello. And so you'd actually carry on a conversation with yourself, right? Like say, hello, what's your name? What's your name? I asked you first, right? And you just have that little conversation. Or, or some of you, I know, you're a closet yodeler. I'll bet when you get in a canyon, you just start yodeling, right? I mean, what could be more cool than yodeling in the Grand Canyon? Hearing that going back and forth. I mean, that would be pretty spectacular. Now, physicists tell us that an echo is simply the, the sound wave from your voice that has bounced off of that uh, far surface and coming back to you. That's propagating through the air. And that's what an echo is. Now, you don't hear echoes in your house because the uh, rooms are too small. The, sound, the speed of sound is too fast so that the time difference between when it leaves your mouth and when it comes back to your ear is just so very small. So you don't hear echoes there, unless maybe you have a screaming toddler. And then, uh, of course, there's a lot of echoing going on. But that word echo that we use actually comes from a Greek word, echo. It means sound. And we use it typically not just for uh, the sound that you hear bouncing off the canyon wall, but we also use it metaphorically, right, to, to describe a, a, a repeated event or something that we have read or heard before. And I mention echoes this morning because of our next minor prophet, Ze- Ze- Zephaniah, whose prophecy seems to be a, an echo of the prophets that came before him. In fact, I titled today's message, as you can See uh, behind me, haven't we heard this before? Because the themes, the flow of thought, the, the words, the descriptions, they're all very similar and sound very much like what Hosea or Joel or Amos or Micah or Nahum have already said. But Zephaniah is not merely an echo. For in the midst of his message, he also gives us insight into the character of God and into what motivated God to say what he said through the prophets. And so if you've not yet done so, please turn with me to the book of Zephaniah. And I have a goal today, actually accomplished it first hour, but it's to get through the entire book in one sitting. And I know that sounds ambitious, but some of you laughed. We're going to do it. We're going to make it. But first, uh, I want us to look at, we'll look at the overall message of Zephaniah. And then what I want to do is we'll look at God's motivation for that message. And it's a motivation I think may surprise you and I know will challenge you. So first, let's look at his message, the message of Zephaniah. He begins in verse 1 with these words, this background, the word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. 
Now, there's a lot of names there. But there's also three important facts that we learn about Zephaniah here. The first is that he identifies himself as God's prophet. That very first phrase, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. That's one that we see commonly in the prophets. Tells us that he's speaking for God. It is God's word that he is proclaiming. And then he follows that by giving his lineage. A lineage that he stretches back four generations. And several Old Testament scholars noted that that providing more than three generations was unusual. Three was more typical. One reason he may have added that fourth was to show us that, that he came from royal blood. At least that's what I think. Hezekiah here likely refers to King Hezekiah, the godly king of Judah. He follows that with a third fact that we learn, and that is that he prophesied in the days of Josiah, also a descendant of Hezekiah. So Zephaniah and Josiah could be third cousins, since they both share the same great-great-grandfather. Now, a lot happened since Hezekiah's reign. In fact, I have a little slide here, just I know some of you are more visual to help kind of see this, so that's your cue. Thank you. Hezekiah's reign took place about 80 years before Josiah, before the time of Zephaniah's ministry. Hezekiah, again, was the king of Judah, and he was king at the time when the ten northern tribes of Israel had been overtaken and decimated by Assyria. We talked a lot about Assyria and and the judgment to come, especially in Amos. And so Assyria had wiped out those northern tribes, scattered them all over the empire. They were no longer a nation. But Judah remained a nation under the reign of Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18 describes Hezekiah as a godly king. In fact, it says that he trusted in the Lord more than any other king of Judah that was before him or after him. He was a man who clung to the Lord. But such was not the case for his son Manasseh. And though Manasseh enjoyed the longest reign of any king in the history of Israel or Judah, a reign that lasted 55 years, His time on the throne brought about the worst spiritual condition that Judah had ever faced. For Manasseh, he not only endorsed idol worship, he brought that worship, the worship of idols and the immorality and the debauchery that came with it, into the very temple of God. He sacrificed one of his sons to the god Molech, and he named another after the Egyptian god Amun. He practiced witchcraft, consorted with demons, And he murdered many godly people or had them executed. In fact, tradition tells us that he had ordered the execution of Isaiah, that he'd be put inside a hollow log and sawn in two. And so 2 Chronicles 33.9 tells us that Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the Israelites. This was one wicked dude. And his son Ammon was no better. He continued on his dad's legacy. Ammon was the one that he named after the Egyptian god. But Ammon only lasted two years on the throne before God took him out. And then in 640 B.C. came Josiah, a breath of fresh air. And this is the same Josiah that Zephaniah said he prophesied during his reign. So when Josiah comes on the scene, when Zephaniah comes on the scene... Again, Judah is in an abysmal state spiritually. God's people were more pagan than the pagans. They have become more wicked than the nations that God had wiped out because of their wickedness. But there was a silver lining because in the eighth year of Josiah's reign, at the age of 16, 2 Chronicles 34 tells us that Josiah began to seek the Lord. And when he became 20 years old, he began a six-year purge of all the idols, of all the idol worship in Judah. It's an amazing reformation that took place in those days. But Zephaniah mentions nothing about that reformation. He only talks about the idolatry and the sin that took place among the people. And that tells us that he uh, likely then was prophesying in the early days of Josiah's reign, sometime before 628 B.C., which is when Josiah began those reforms. And you know, it would not be too much of a stretch, I think, to consider that Zephaniah had an impact on that Reformation, that that not only his public ministry to Judah, but also perhaps his private ministry to his cousin had had an influence and made a difference. Well, let's look at 
how Zephaniah begins his message, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1. God speaking through him says this, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Stop there a minute. Here in Zephaniah's message, he doesn't start it with a nice little story, funny joke or personal greeting, does he? In fact, J.N. Heflin says, it is doubtful a more negative introduction has ever been given to a sermon than the one Zephaniah offers. And indeed, that is the case. I mean, he comes out right out of the gate with a straight punch to the gut. It's like preaching UFC style. (laughs) Right? He gives these six definitive uh, declarations from God, beginning with one that is Uh, The most extensive, the most devastating when he says, I will completely remove. That is, I will utterly sweep away everything, everything from the face of the earth. And he goes on in the next couple of verses to describe what he means by that. He says, I will blot out man from the face of the earth. I mean, uh, man and beast, birds and fish. So by everything, I mean everything, God says. Reminds me of the flood and what God said at that time where he said, I will blot out man from the face of the earth, from man to animals, to the birds of the sky. Indeed, Zephaniah could not have a more terrifying beginning to his message. And in verse four, God then aims his sights squarely on Judah. And he gives the reason for his judgment upon them. And it was primarily because of what? What does God say he was bringing this judgment for? Because of their idol worship, their idolatry, right? Their false gods. And Judah had collected quite a few of them. They had a full repertoire of gods. Again, they were more pagan than the pagans. They, you know, the nations around them, hey, you got some gods, bring them on in. We'll include them with, uh, and we'll make them part of the party here. We'll worship them too. He was prolific. He mentions a few of them here from the Sidonian god Baal to the Moabite god Molech to the Assyrian astral gods and goddesses to the Egyptian god Amun. Judas collected all of them, welcomed them all. Verse four indicates that they had priests for every occasion. Two different words there for priests. One refers to the priests of the false gods and the other refers to uh, the priests of Yahweh. You could have, if you wanted to come worship one of the false gods, we've got somebody that can help you with that. If you want to come and and seek Yahweh, well, we have someone for that too. If you want a mixture, we have it all here. It's all available for you. That's what we see at the end of verse 5, where they would make oaths or swear allegiance to God. And at the same time, very next day, they come to service to Yahweh in the morning, and then in the evening they go sacrifice a child to Molech or, or go worship Baal or something like that. And so God begins this first chapter by saying, I've had enough. I've had enough. I'm going to come in judgment and like a broom, I'm going to sweep you from the face of the earth. A picture there, the picture of broom sweeping off the dust from your porch. That's what God says he will do with everything on the face of the earth. He then says in verse seven, be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. And so the tone here, the imagery, continues with this sobering picture. God first says, hush, be quiet, silence. And then he goes on to describe this image that Judah would be like an animal being brought before the altar and being slaughtered. And notice here in verse 7, that phrase, he says the Lord's day or the day of the Lord, Yahweh's day. We've seen this before, haven't we? Think back to the various prophets. It's been mentioned many times. In fact, we first saw it way back when we looked at Obadiah. And then again in Joel, it is mentioned several times as well. It is Yahweh's day. 
It's his day. Amos talks about it, and now Zephaniah. In fact, Zephaniah refers to it more often than any other prophet, over 20 times. He refers to the day of the Lord, Yahweh's day. And in general, Yahweh's day was, was a reference to a time when God would specifically and decisively intervene in human history, particularly in judgment. And that's the emphasis we see in the prophets, that of, of judgment in the Lord's day. And then also he mentions restoration for his people. And in the historical context of Zephaniah, Yahweh's day likely refers here to the Babylonian invasion that was soon to come. If you notice on the chart that's still up there, it was not long after Josiah's reign when Babylon would come through the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar and sweep through Jerusalem. Multiple attacks ending up decimating the people of Judah, bringing them into exile. And it is likely that which is being pointed to as Yahweh's day here. And we see that by the emphasis in verse 7 that it is near, which is mentioned again in verse 14. And also the specific reference in verse 8 to the king's sons being punished. I think these things tell us it was something that was coming soon, likely in the next generation. And then that continues that discussion. And then when we reach verse 14, if you look there with me, Zephaniah then gives the most descriptive and sobering of pictures of Yahweh's day that's probably found anywhere in the Old Testament. Notice what he says there. Verse 14, near is the great day of the Lord Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. It's quite a picture. I don't think I need to go through and explain all of that in detail, do I? I mean, just the impact, the imagery. It's ominous, it's sobering, it's terrifying, it's... It's brutal, this picture of fierce judgment. And it seems here that Zephaniah is no longer just speaking of the impending day of the Babylonian invasion as he had been a moment earlier. Here it seems that he's speaking more of a global rather than a local judgment, something that would be happening further in the future. For notice in the middle of verse 18, he says, all the earth will be devoured. And then at the end of verse 18, of all the inhabitants of the earth, This harkens us back to Zephaniah in the beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1 when he says, I will sweep all things from the face of the earth. Or again in verse 3, I will cut off man from the face of the earth. This is global. This is the planet. This is all humanity. If we continued reading on in chapter 2, we would see judgment after judgment being declared on the Gentile nations. Seems that the nations he identifies there, he mentions several of them, and I think does so with the intent to indicate God will be moving out in all directions in this judgment. He mentions Philistia in verses 4 to 7. They were located to the west of Judah. He mentions Moab and Ammon in verses 8 and 9, which are located to the east. Ethiopia in verse 12, which was to the south. And Assyria in verse 13 to the north. And so together... These tell us that God's judgment of his judgment against sin is not just coming against Judah. It's not confined to Judah, but to all the nations. It's not confined to 2,600 years ago, but to all of history. These events, this Babylonian invasion, the Assyrian invasion, which was also considered a Yahweh's day historically. Indeed, these events in Zephaniah and prior are but a, a foreshadowing, a, a portend of the ultimate day of the Lord, the final day of judgment. These judgments upon Judah and and the nations are really an undercard to the main event, God's final judgment, one that we see described in great detail in the book of Revelation. Plagues and terrors, judgment, destruction, the utter decimation of humanity. In fact, we see that picture In seed form here, look at verse 17 again of chapter 1 of Zephaniah. He describes that here. He says, I will bring distress on men. They will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. 
Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end. Indeed, a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. And what's so scary here is not just this picture of judgment that he presents, but that he says there's no escape from it. He says you can't buy your way out. You can't on that day when you stand before the Lord, you can't pull out your wallet and say, oh, OK, God, how much? Right. You might be able to get away with that with a guy with a gun or knife facing you. Maybe he'll take your wallet and take off. God can't be bought. Not in that day. Notice the end of verse 18. It says he will make a complete end. That means it's a finishing stroke. It's over. It's done. And again, this message expands beyond Judah. It expands beyond the nations of the ancient Near East. It is a message here. Again, notice the global nature of it to every human being over the entire earth for all history. So, beloved, we we can't mentally file these words from Zephaniah in the drawer of, of labeled Old Testament wrath stuff. That has no significance for us today. We, we can't say, well, this is just angry God talk. Old Testament stuff. Very discouraging, not too appealing. We shouldn't bring it up anymore because it just turns people off today. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's negative. It's discouraging. It's not very appealing. We need to be nice. We need to be uplifting. We need to only talk about God's love. But if that were the case, if this were just left back in the annals of the Old Testament, then... John the Baptist would not have talked so much about judgment, would he? If this were the case, we wouldn't see it mentioned so often in the epistles. If that were the case, we would not have the book of Revelation. And definitely, if it were the case that God's wrath against sin was no longer relevant, then certainly Jesus would never talk about it. But yet, how often does he bring it up? I challenge you, read through the Gospels, read through the book of Luke, and just notice how many times Jesus talks about, refers to judgment, hell, the call to repentance. God is telling us the day of wrath is coming. And you know what? By doing that, He is showing love. He is being kind. He is demonstrating desire to help. Because what He's doing is warning us Warning of what's coming so that we would desire to flee from from it. I mean, think about this. If normally in war, your enemy doesn't tell you what's going to happen, right? He just does it. His goal is to wipe you out. His goal is to destroy you. He hates you. But see, God sends a warning. He tells us exactly what's going to happen. He he describes explicitly what that's going to be like because he's warning us. It's an act of love. It's an act of mercy. You'd want to know if you had a disease, right? Right? So you could get a treatment for it. You'd want to know if you were headed for danger. You would want somebody to warn you, right? So that you could avoid it. Well, what about everyone else around us? Shouldn't we be warning them? Shouldn't we be telling them? Wow, that's just... Again, that's people don't want to hear that. This is judgmental. This is the harsh. This is they won't like it. It's so negative. Yes, it is negative. That's the point. A holy God's just wrath against sin. It, it may not be attractive. It, it may not be appealing, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. God paints these graphic and and terrible pictures of judgment here. And and remember, these aren't this isn't going to be on a big screen and CG someday. This is going to really happen. The things we read about in Revelation, the things we read about here in Zephaniah and the other prophets, the things Jesus spoke of in the apostles, they're not fantasy. There is a final day of judgment coming. It's not some far removed event that has nothing at all to do with us today, because, again, beloved judgment is coming. Hell is real. I don't like to talk about it. It's real. We can't put our heads in the sand. And we can't let others force us to do that because just like we need to hear the message, so too do they. Because it is God's desire 
that they turn, right? He's providing this call to judgment, this warning, so that we would respond. Because you know what? Everybody, every single person is going to stand before God to answer for his or her sin. Unless, unless you ask Jesus to do it for you. He's the only way of escape. His death on the cross, in that event, for all who would put their faith and trust in Him, He took the judgment on Himself. So that when you stand before God, He's standing in front of you. This one is clean. He's forgiven. She's forgiven. So put faith in me. I paid for it, Father. You accepted that payment. By raising me from the dead. For anyone who would desire to turn from their sin. If you would seek to confess that sin. Desire to be forgiven. Genuinely come to him. And plead for mercy. Express a desire to follow him the rest of your days. To trust him. To seek him. To love him. Then Jesus will stand in front on that final day. But that payment that he has made on the cross again, can only be applied to your account if you repent and believe. So we see here in Zephaniah's message, it's intended to warn. God's not throwing some cosmic tantrum here or or just telling us that he's mad. Again, he's warning us. He's intending to call us to action. And we see that intent clearly in chapter 2. If you look at verse 1, notice he says there, after this detailed description of the graphic nature and and terror of the day of the Lord, he says this in verse 1 of chapter 2, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame, before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who've carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Do you notice here he repeats two words three times? Did you catch that? Before, 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 and then seek, seek, seek. Before the day of God's wrath comes, seek the Lord. Reminds me back in Amos. He says essentially the same thing. Remember, he talked a lot about God's judgment there, and he said in Amos 5, verse 4, These words, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. Seek the Lord that you may live. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Again, three times. Seek, seek, seek. Different word in the Hebrew there, but it carries the same idea. Pursuit. This command is more than just stop doing wrong. It's more than just do good. What he's saying here is, notice the first thing Amos and Zephaniah both say, is they say, seek me, seek the Lord. The object of that seeking is not some activity, it's a person. It is Him, and that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to seek Jesus. Not just to seek His morality, or His teachings, or His way of life, or His commands. Indeed, those are, are part, they come with it, but the primary, primary focus is seeking Him. You know, it brings to my mind that that time when the disciples first met Jesus. Describe in John chapter 1. Remember when John sees Jesus and he proclaims that profound, those profound words, right? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Turns out two of his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, are standing next to him when he, when he said that. One of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The other, we don't know for sure, it may have been John. John, who became the Apostle John. They're standing there. They hear these words and they decide they're going to go up to Jesus. And so they approach him. And as they approach him, Jesus asked them this question. What do you seek? Now, there's the question of all questions, isn't it? (laughs) Right. Jesus saying, "What, what, what do you really want from me? What are you here for? A miracle? Theological discussion? An education? A good health? Blessing? Comfort? Nice career? A good family? Long life, what are you really after? What do you want? What are you seeking? And their reply to 
Jesus' question is most interesting. For after Jesus says, what are you seeking? They respond with, where are you staying? Well, that's, that's kind of odd. It's almost like Jesus caught them off guard, you know, and they come up, what are you seeking? Um, well, uh, where are you staying? Is it nice? Do you, do you like your lodging? How's the weather? Right? It might seem like that's what's going on here, but actually in their question, I, I, I love their response because in a sense they're saying, what is it we're seeking? <laughs> we're seeking you. Where are you staying? We want to spend time with you. We want to know you. And so they did. They went with him and spent the day with him. Again, a call, a call to repentance, what Zephaniah is calling for and what we see often in Scripture, it's not simply a call to stop sinning and do right. It's not just a call to, to turn from sin. It is a call to turn from sin. But it's a call to turn from sin to pursue Christ. It's a call to stop loving things but to love Him. It is a call to stop worshiping self but to worship Jesus. That's really the essence of faith. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Indeed, that was Zephaniah's message. Stop going after these idols. Seek the Lord. That's the heart of the gospel message. Stop, stop turning to things that won't satisfy you. Stop chasing after idols. Turn to Christ. Trust Him. Follow Him. Pursue Him. Look for joy in nothing else. Because He's all you need. And we don't have time to go into it, but if you keep reading through that first chapter in John, it's very interesting. The word found is repeated a lot. You know, the disciples talked a lot. We found him. We found the Messiah. But there's an irony there. We learn actually it was the Messiah who found them. In fact, you remember what he told Nathaniel a little bit later? He said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This is a reminder that God is the one who draws us. And this is what we see in the third chapter of Zephaniah, if you can move over there, Zephaniah has been speaking of judgment, does all the way from chapter 1 in through chapter 3, begins again to focus back on Judah and judgment that is coming. And then he transitions. He transitions in verse 9 to a theme of restoration. Again, this is a flow of thought, an outline that we've seen in many of the prophets. Obadiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, all of them who... Begin with judgment, describe much about his judgment, and then end with a promise, the prophecy of God's promise that he would restore his people, that he would restore a remnant. In Zephaniah, that transition takes place in chapter 3, verse 9, where God says, For then I will give to the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. And then if you skip down to verse 12, he says, But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Notice here it is God taking action. I will give. I will leave. I will remove from your midst, he says in verse 11. I will keep my promise to Abraham and to his people. And the chapter 3 continues with this tone of, of joy and exaltation at God's salvation, then ending with these words in verse 20. God encourages them, at that time I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So again, stepping back from Zephaniah. See, we covered it. And we have time to spare. But but stepping back from this message of Zephaniah, we... We really do have the message of the minor prophets. Reformer Martin Bucer wrote, If anyone wishes all the secret oracles of the prophets to be given in a brief compendium, let him read through Zephaniah. Indeed, Zephaniah does have all the characteristics of the twelve. The, the declaration, the strong declaration of judgment, the call to repentance, the promise of restoration. It's all here. Similar pattern that we have seen before. And as a result, this has led several Old Testament scholars to see Zephaniah as merely a reformulation of the prophets. Like he just read the other guys, collected something together, 
gave a message or two. They see him as simply just an echo of the twelve. That he's kind of like this Cliff Notes version of the minor prophets. And as a result, Zephaniah doesn't receive a lot of attention. But, but a study of his book shows that he does have something unique to the message of the prophets. Something that he articulates and reveals, I think, more clearly than any other prophet. It is a truth about one of God's attributes. One that helps to explain or give the reason for God's mo- the motivation for God's wrath against sin. And we find it in two separate verses in Zephaniah. He repeats, actually repeats this phrase twice toward the beginning of his book and toward the end. The first is in Zephaniah 1.18 and then again in Zephaniah 3.8. And I want you to see if you can find the thing that he repeats in both of those verses. Back at Zephaniah 1.18, let me read it again. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Then look at Zephaniah 3.8, where he says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to the prey. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Now, both of these verses speak of God's wrath, his judgment against sin. Notice there he gives different synonyms, anger, wrath, indignation. We see that in both verses. But did you catch what motivated it? And why? It's found in a phrase, again, that he repeats in both passages. Do you see it? What is it? You got it. 118, all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. 38, all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. At least that's how the New American Standard translates it. That those words jealousy and zeal actually come from the same word in Hebrew, kinah. So why they translated it differently in each passage, I, I don't know. Because the word means the same thing in both. In the ESV, I like how they put it. They consistently say it in both Cases in the fire of his or my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So again, what was it that motivated God's wrath? The jealousy of God. Now that's an attribute you don't often hear talked about. It seems kind of rather unseemly to talk about God as jealous. A negative connotation to that. As Shakespeare's Iago said to Othello, Oh, beware, my Lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Indeed, that is how jealousy is perceived, usually as this envy, this selfishness, this coveting, wanting something that someone else has. It's often associated with the insecure, possessive husband who becomes controlling and abusive. But in relation to God, that is not the biblical sense of the word kinah. When speaking of the jealousy of God, we should not see it as we do our lustful, sinful envy. For regarding God's jealousy in the Bible, it's not talking about God wanting something that He doesn't possess, right? He possesses everything. <laughs> it's all His. It's not like He looks around the earth and says, Oh, I want that. I want that. No, it's His. Everything's his. He owns it all. His jealousy cannot mean that he needs attention or that he he craves praise. Acts 17.25 says God has no needs. In fact, he meets our needs. We're the ones with the needs, not him. His jealousy cannot be the insecurity of losing someone's affections or attention. For God has no insecurities. Do you realize God is perfectly satisfied and content and happy in himself? He didn't create us because there was a void in his heart that needed to be filled. We are not here because of some need that God had. He in his love and mercy created us. We are the ones again that have the needs and insecurities, not God. He is content within himself. He always has been and he always will be. That's a profound thought. Give that some meditation this week. So then what does it mean that God is jealous? 
Well, think back Ten Commandments. You remember what the first commandment was, Exodus 20? You shall have no other gods before me, right? And he goes on to say, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, God tells the Israelites as they are about to enter the promised land, he tells them, you need to wipe out, destroy all the idols of the Canaanites so that you would not be tempted to serve and worship those idols. In verse 14 of Exodus 34, he says, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. He stepped it up a notch there. Not just saying that he is jealous, but his name is jealous. It's part of his character, his nature, who he is. Just as he is love and mercy and justice and holiness and compassion, he is jealous. This is profound to consider. Moses repeated the same thing to the next generation of Israelites in Deuteronomy 4 as they were about to enter the land and again warns them, don't worship the idols that are in the land. And then he adds this, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Same exact language that Zephaniah used. Like a fire that's devouring. So does this mean that that God felt threatened by these idols? Does this mean that he's worried about losing their praise and worship to these false gods? No, God gives the reason in Isaiah 42.8 when he says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. 48.11 of Isaiah, he says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. How can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Or in Ezekiel 39.25, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. So in wrath, in judgment, in uh, care, in blessing, I'm doing all this for one reason and one reason alone, God says, for my glory. And I'm not going to share it with anyone else because it doesn't belong to anyone else. Nothing else in this universe deserves to be honored and praised because it all emanates from him. It all came from him and continues to come from him. All of these passages, they convey this one key truth that we must understand. That God is jealous for his name. He is jealous for his glory. He has this passionate, all consuming zeal, this this continuous commitment To protect his honor. In fact, theologian Wayne Grudem defined jealousy in this way of God, I think, very well. He said, God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. He will not share his glory with another because that would be elevating that other thing to a status or position that's not consistent with its nature. Because there are no other. Will you tell me this? Are there any other infinite, holy, eternal, perfect beings in this universe? No. By far, no. There's only one. No one deserves God's glory. In addition, sharing his glory would be inconsistent and untrue with who he is because he'd be acknowledging or saying that he's less than the sovereign, unsurpassed, transcendent, all-powerful, glorious God of the universe. And so God zealously protects his glory. It belongs to him. It's his. No one else. Remember what we saw in Habakkuk? Said in the middle of chapter 2. The goal of history is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or Paul put the goal of history in Ephesians 1 this way as the summing up of all things in Christ. All things in the heaven, heavens and on earth to the praise of his glory. Interestingly enough, that phrase to the praise of his glory occurs three times in Ephesians 1. That's what it's all about. That's what history is all about. And that's what God will fiercely protect. Viola Professor Eric Tennis says this, God's ultimate and overriding purpose in human history is the exaltation and vindication of his own glory. 
It was quoted earlier, and we hear this verse a lot this time of year. Isaiah 9, 6. Start it with me. For unto us, right? Son is born unto us, child is given. Right? And it describes his name as be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. It goes on to say the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And then do you know how it ends? The end of verse 7? The zeal, the jealousy of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Do you know why God sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to rule, and to die on our behalf? Because he's jealous for his glory. Because we see in the cross, we see in the Son of God that jealousy for his glory in a magnificent way. Because we see in the cross God's wrath against sin and his love for sinners, don't we? We see at the cross God's justice and his grace, his holiness and his mercy. We, we see in Jesus Christ the full radiance of God's glory. Every attribute on display in magnificent wonder. God sent Jesus in, as a zeal. He had zeal for his glory. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will make it happen. We'll send the Lord Jesus Christ to earth so that God will be seen as who he is. God is jealous for his glory. And some may see this passionate commitment to protect his glory as hypocritical. You may think, well, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. God tells us not to exalt ourselves, and yet that is his primary motivation for all that he does. He tells us not to seek our own glory, but that is his principal desire. How does that work? It seems inconsistent. But beloved, that statement betrays a very poor understanding of who God is. I think back again of Habakkuk. Remember that last chapter last week we talked about he has this vision of God. And remember his response at the end of that? He's terrified. He got a glimpse. He got a picture of who God really is. A, a vision, just as Isaiah, just as John did in Revelation. And his response was fear, was terror. He trembled. He quivered. He shook. We ask these kinds of questions at times of God because we have never really seen that glimpse. We've really never seen who God really is. If we would just have a little picture, a little taste... We would say, yes, God deserves all glory. He deserves all praise. We should do nothing that ever takes away from him. For look at how amazing he is. Look at how awe-inspiring he is. When we get to the throne room, we're not going to run up and slap God on the back. (laughs) We're going to worship him. Because we'll recognize innately that God deserves all glory. In fact, all of creation will that in Philippians 2. Everyone will bow down. Whether they hate him or not. This is God. It is right that God protect his honor. It is right that he expect all the universe to glorify him. The simple reason is he's God. That's why. That's why it's right. He's God. He made us. He sustains us. At all times. He's the only one worthy of worship. In fact, this is what's declared in the throne room of God as we read in Revelation 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Do you know why you're here? Do you know why we're here? Because God wanted that to be. It wasn't your parents who brought you into this world. They were a means, but it was God who brought you into this world. It is God who has sustained you. It is God who has given you life even this morning. It is God who will determine when your days on earth end. You're here because God says you're here. He's God. He created you. These verses, Psalm 148.5 says, let, the praise, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Simple reason that all our praise and honor devotion belongs to God is he made us. Again, he's God. 
that simple. <laughs> nothing can survive without him. Nothing. No creature. Nothing can survive without God. Nothing can exist without God. Now and forever. So it's right for him to expect to be glorified by us exclusively. And in addition to that, it's right because of who he is. Again, I go back to that picture that Habakkuk saw of God as this warrior king. And he saw his power. God is eternal. He's infinite. He's majestic. He's holy. He's love. He's breathtaking. He's awe-inspiring. He's overwhelming. Moses declared in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. It is right for God to protect his honor. It is right for us to seek his honor because he is the glorious sovereign God and nothing else deserves glory except for him. Amen is right. (laughs) Now, it is not only right for God to be jealous for his glory, but it is also good. It is a good thing. For in his desire to, to show his glory by revealing to creation who he is his justice his grace his love his mercy his patience his humility his holiness in doing that in order to do that he became a man and paid for our sin on the cross and beloved listen to me carefully here this is important do you know that God's infinite love and compassion would never have been seen by us or his creation if he was not jealous for his glory. If he did not make a decision, instead of wiping us out, as we deserved after that very first sin in the garden, God chose to reveal his glory, desired to reveal his glory by showing mercy and patience and continues to do so in our lives. As much sin and rebellion as we have committed against him, He has still provided forgiveness and a way of salvation for any who would put their trust in him. (laughs) That is amazing. I would wonder how many of us would do it. How many sins you could take on from somebody else before you'd finally say, forget it. I'm never forgiving that guy. For some of us, it's just one. But God is patient with the millions of sins. I'll bet if you counted millions of sins that just each one of us have committed just in our thoughts. And God has chosen, because he's jealous for his glory and to show who he is and his love and mercy, and his patience provided a way that we could know him, sending the Lord Jesus Christ. Beyond that, his passionate zeal for his glory is a good thing because it means he's jealous for his people. And that if there's anything that attacks or seeks to undermine or take away from our relationship with God, God will fiercely... Go after that because he's jealous for our faithfulness to him. He's jealous for his glory in that. It may seem that God's jealousy for his glory, that that, that would be intention with intention, not attention, but intention opposite with our good. That if he's seeking his glory, that that's, that's really an opposition for for seeking to love us and for our good. Some people see this as as competing that that God desiring his glory means we're really out of the picture. But, you know, it's just the opposite. For as God reveals his glory to us, as he calls us to give glory to him. Do you know that is where we actually find true joy, satisfaction, peace, contentment? purpose in life psalm 1611 said it very simply in your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand there are pleasures forever john piper expresses it this way he says what could god give us to enjoy that would show him most loving that's a good question god says he's love he says he loves us what could he give what's the greatest thing he could give to express that love You must read Piper. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. There's only one possible answer, isn't there? Himself! Exclamation point! If God would give us the best, the most satisfying that is, if he would love us perfectly, he must offer us no less than himself. 
for a contemplation and fellowship. This was precisely God's intention in sending his son. As first Peter 318 says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or Romans 5, 2 tells us, therefore, having been justified by through faith, uh, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Beloved, Christ came so that we might have a way to have a relationship, a fellowship, an intimate relationship with God so that we would experience and see His glory. Again, we quote from Tennis. He notes, When God's creatures recognize that He is worthy of ultimate honor and give Him absolute devotion, it is the best, most fulfilling experience man can attain. God alone is able to love completely and seek His own glory at the same time. Again, I think back to Habakkuk's experience. He, he sees this picture, this vision of God. He's blown away from, by it. He's terrified by it. But in that moment, he understands a little bit more just who God is. And remember his response? He says, Lord, seeing who you are, you, you can take it all away from me. I could lose it all. I'm going to rejoice and exalt in you. All he could do was give God praise and honor and glory because he had seen the true God. At least seen a glimpse of him in a vision. Even that moved him to want to seek God's glory. So much more uh, could be said on this important attribute of God, his, his jealousy. I, I commend to you uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. He has a really good chapter on this topic in that book. Also to another book I've been quoting from several times this morning by Eric Tennis, uh, called Godly Jealousy. It's also very good. But as we close our time together, I, I want to ask you this question. Are you jealous for God's glory? Really? Do you have a, a zeal, a passionate commitment for His honor? When Phineas pierced through that immoral couple, that man and woman who come in the tabernacle defying God, essentially, by their presence. Numbers 25.11 says, Remember, he pierced them through, and God says that Phineas was jealous with my jealousy. Or Elijah, when he challenged the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings 19.10 tells us that, you know, as he looked around the land, saw this Baal worship, all worship, he said, enough of this. This isn't right. And he says there in 1 Kings 19.10 that he took on the prophets because he was jealous for the Lord. Or, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he came into the temple and cleared it out. Why, why did he do that? Was he just wanting some space? They were crowding him out? Because I want a chair here, too. Why did he clear them out? They were using God to make money. And it says in John, John says, a zeal, jealousy for God's house, for his glory and honor, consumed Christ. That's why he threw him out. Indeed, it was also jealousy for God's glory that, that drove Jesus to the cross. As we see in John twelve twenty seven, when Jesus said, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. What moved Jesus to keep marching forward? To not just the torture, not just the death, but to carry the weight of sin, God's wrath, infinite, eternal hell on his shoulders. Father, glorify your name. Jesus suffered all that he did because he had a passion for God's glory. And Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us there was joy in that pursuit. That as he suffered, as he endured, there was a joy set before him. So, beloved, may our Savior's example encourage us that in seeking the glory of God and glorifying Him and being jealous for it as He is, we too find true lasting joy in Him. Let's pray. Thank you for this picture. Thank you, Lord, for Zephaniah. 
Thank you for revealing through him just your motivation for your wrath against sin and for your mercy, your willingness to forgive because you're jealous for your glory. And it is right and it is good. We thank you that in that passionate zeal to protect your honor, that to show us who you are, you sent your only son, your beloved son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming that we may see just how glorious you are. As Hebrews says, you're the radiance of God's glory, exact representation of his nature. We're so grateful. Move in us to be also jealous for your glory. Move in us to declare that judgment is coming. That it is real, that it will happen. But there is a way of escape. Lord, may you move us to be committed to that message of truth. To speak it boldly and graciously to a world that needs to hear. Oh, Lord, glorify yourself through us. Please, amen.